We have a very special guest today, someone who I've known for many, many, many years. I call him JB3, but James Burton III, welcome to Long Tones. Thanks for being with us this evening. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, for those of you who don't know, James Burton is an incredible, incredible musician, arranger, composer. Uh, he's played on multiple Grammy award-winning albums and Tony award-winning Broadway productions. He went to the Jackie McLean Institute, the Hart School of Music. He earned his master's degree in artist diploma at the Juilliard School. Uh, currently, James is playing original compositions and can be heard alongside bandmates Jeremy Pelt and Wayne Escoffrey in a dynamic new ensemble, the Black Art Jazz Collective. Uh, James is an avid educator and also has held full-time associate position professorships at the Juilliard School and the Manhattan School of Music, as well as the Director of Jazz Education at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center. Man, yeah. that's 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 quite an intro, man. That's that's incredible. All that stuff. Yeah. It always amazes me, the bios that we read on here. It's just incredible what we all have done. So we're going to start off talking about, um, you know, establishing your career as a trombone player, move into a little bit of talk about uh, excelling as both a performer and uh, an educator, and then take some Q&A from our folks out in uh, in the internet land here. Uh, James, maybe you can take us through your, you know, your kind of your origin story and, uh, you know, what brought you up through, what got you hooked on trombone and, and um, how did that kind of bring you to where you're at today? Oh man, I love that origin story because I love the comic book movies, guilty pleasure. <laughs> uh, well, I started in fourth grade, you know, it was the standard thing in the school where they, you know, you either go into the choir or you pick an instrument. And uh, I wanted to play the trumpet or the saxophone, but my father wasn't working at the time. So when I brought the list of instruments home and the cost for each one to rent, he scrolled right to the bottom, found the cheapest one, trombone. You get that one. Was there like a natural kind of natural inclination or was that something that you just really, you know, you, you pursued? Was there, was there a moment when you were like, all right, maybe this is going to work. Let's, let's go for this. Well, you know, with music, there's always a social component, man. So I had a stand partner in fourth and fifth and sixth grade, a cat named uh, Tahir Mitchell. See, this is, you could tell it really rocked my world because I remember <laughs> that cat's name. Tahir Mitchell, man. And he was the first chair, you know, and it was all about catching him. Was he, was he in the same grade or he was older? He was one year older. Okay. So and and like, what's, what's he doing now? He's not doing music, is he? I don't know. I don't know. I lost <laughs> I lost, uh, lost yeah, track of him. Fa Facebook him after this. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, I had a great, great uh, band director in elementary school, uh, a cat named uh, Vincent DiRienzo. And he would just make up kind of funny songs. He made lessons really fun. And so it was easy for me to take to it. Where where was this, James? This was in Queens? Uh, Long Island. Long Westbury, Island. Long Island. Westbury, okay. And, and was there a point where you got to, you're saying, okay, this might actually be something for me. Um, at what point did you say, you know, I think I'm going to pursue trombone going forward? Well, I've made like the all county band and did some of the regional things, you know, concert band and all that stuff. But it was really when my high school band director, my freshman year told me to, I should check out um, John Coltrane's album, Blue Train. And he said, man, you're going to love this guy, Curtis Fuller. So I was like, man, who is this Curtis guy? So put that CD on and it was like a lightning bolt to the top of the head. This is it, go this way, and you're gonna do this for the rest of your life. I knew immediately, like I said, I didn't know what I was listening to, but I knew whatever that is, I wanna do that. Wow. wow. 
Josh, you would have an album that's like that for you. I'm just curious. Man, for brass, no, because I, I stumbled upon brass just okay. out of like pure coincidence as a kid because I was a guitar player. Okay. But as as a kid, like in like elementary school and middle school, and I was really hard on guitar. Man, I, I heard some Jimi Hendrix and I was like, wow, that's incredible. Yep. But as I was learning guitar, I, I then got into blues and I, I heard some Lead Belly. Oh, you know, it's man. just like, yep. you know, one of the original Mississippi Delta blues guys. And I was like, wow, that's like, I want to do that. And that's For, what I did on guitar, but not brass. Brass For was me, like, I remember it was, um, it was the, uh, the, this is going to sound kind of silly. There were two of them. There was one of those, like a Sony mix. It was like greatest hits for trumpet. And it had a bunch of really good recordings on there, including Winton's carnival and that sort of stuff. But, um, and then the other one was the, uh, the soundtrack for the Olympics in 1996 <laughs> with all the John Williams, uh, you know, some of the heroes John and stuff Williams. like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Tim Morrison blowing that solo, uh, with the Boston pops. And it was, that was, that was free. That was the one, but. Anyway, I digress. I was always, that's always something I'm always curious about with people. Is like, it, was there a was there an album? Was there a moment? Um, but yeah, James, did I read somewhere that you you actually went in as pre med, or was that something that I imagined? No, that's that that is the the truth. Um, I wanted to be a musician coming out of high school, but unfortunately, you know, community and familial pressures, you know. Lots of adults saying, you can't do that. You'll be broke. You won't have a good life. It's too hard. And so uh, I was always kind of naturally good at science. I was, I was actually a really good student and a good athlete. I was very confused as a teenager. So um, <laughs> I, I, just, I just went into to pre-med because I like science and um, went to play football. So you played, you played some football in college? Yep. Wow. Yeah. Were you playing trombone on the side while doing that too, or? There was a, a lab jazz band, just an elective band that met once a week. And Todd Kuhlman, great bass player, was the director of the band. And there were some good guys and some good um, younger high school players out east on Long Island that would come out to kind of populate the band. And the band was great. It had a vibe and it sort of gave me my fix once a week. But I just remember feeling like it wasn't enough. Todd, for folks that don't know, Todd Kuhlman is is an absolute riot. He's hilarious. And I remember kind of chipping some note in a real obvious way in rehearsal. And Todd kind of stopped the band. He said, so what's your major? <laughs> I, said, I said, I'm going to be a doctor, but I might change it. He said, yeah, you might want to change that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's hilarious. So when, when did you change over from, from pre-med to music? Uh, halfway through after sophomore year. Wow. And you were in, how did your, how did your family uh, receive that? Well, actually the head of the department at the Hart school called my house to say that I had gotten a scholarship. The whole thing was hush hush, very secret. Like my mom drove me up there to audition and I got this big scholarship. And so the cat called the house on a, on a landline. Remember those landline telephone? I've heard of that. My father happened to pick up the phone and he cussed the, the cat out <laughs> and hung up the phone on him. No, my son will not be doing that. Click. <laughs> so oh, it was man. off to a good start then. It's off to a great start. But they were back actually very understanding when I called them back. They said, don't worry about it. It happens more often than you would think. So then you did, you did music, graduated, and then you came to New York and you went to Juilliard. 
Yes, but I got to say before that, spending two years with uh, Steve Davis was my trombone teacher at the high school. Yep. Jackie McLean was the he created the program. Right. Um, jazz education pioneer. Um, he was around Nat Reeves, bass player. They really took care of us. Nat Reeves gave me my first gig. What was the first gig? <laughs> it was it was quartet at a at a nice little restaurant downtown Hartford, and I remember, you know. Life, a lot of the times, it's about the choices you make. So I remember I, I was trying to like look real slick for the gig. So I had a, a black suit, burgundy shirt. And <laughs> now here's where the crossroads is. Black shoes, burgundy shoes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I chose the wrong shoes that night. <laughs> and I just remember before we played the first note, um, Nat Reeves came in and he said, hey, man, how's it going? And he looked me up and down. And he saw my shoes. He said, oh, the agony of defeat. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, it can only go up from there. So did that did that spark your fashion trend for later in life? Because for people who don't know James, James is very, I, I think James is very dapper. He's always very well dressed. I, I love your style. Oh, man. Christian McBride told me once, he said, man, I think you sleep in a tuxedo. <laughs> <laughs> Professor McLean always told us, you know, they see you before they hear you. And, um, you know, you want to put our best foot forward. Even yeah. if it has burgundy shoes on it. That's right. So, so, so Stevie D, you were, you were with him. Awesome. Amazing trombone player, educator, person. Um, did he, did he encourage you to audition for Juilliard? At the time, yeah, he, when I, he didn't push me in that direction, but I remember hearing about the new program they were starting, because it was brand new back yeah, in you were, you were, were you were first year, uh, or second, second the, year of the program. Yeah, and uh, when I mentioned it, he just said, you know, I think this, that, that would be a, like a really good opportunity, you know, it was, it was time for me to move to New York at that point in time mm -hmm. in my life, you know. Were you, were you going back and forth, were you getting some gigs in town? Yeah. Or, or playing, yeah. Yeah, uh, Illinois Jaquette, Texas tenor, the the legend had a he had a big band and he came up through Hartford and he performed at Jackie's Artist Collective, and uh, Jackie sort of recommended me to him. He said, "If you need a young trombone player, man, this is your guy," and Jacket hired me. What was that like? It was an experience. Anybody who played with Jacket knows he he could be rough, but it was always with love and in the spirit of learning. I just remember, so, okay, he had these books, his big band books that, that had been around forever. And the music sometimes, I mean, there would be grease on the parts. It would be torn. Sometimes you see blood on the parts, you know, from cats like hurting their chops and stuff. And so there was literally a section in one arrangement that I couldn't see. And so I, I took my horn down, stopped playing during the shout course. He cut the band off and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I, I can't really see you. I was trying to explain myself. And he said, let me ask you a question. Is there music in front of you? <laughs> I said, well, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and in, in a more colorful, in more colorful words, he told me, well, play. You know, like, <laughs> no matter what, just play. It was just, you know, so embarrassing. And then he always kept the temperature of his basement really cold. It would be like 55 degrees down there. And he would have the piano tuned right before rehearsal. So the piano would be in tune, but the basement would be freezing. And so all the brass players would be out of tune. So he had this big tuning ritual, man, like where you single everybody out. You go down the line. 
And at the time, I was playing an old opera. Giant, giant horn, nickel silver. All right, tune up. And I'm first. So I play, and I'm like a quarter tone flat. It's not, so I push the tuna slide all the way in, play again, still flat. Oh. just He's just like, there's no hope for you. You know, <laughs> I'm just demoralized. He goes to the next cat, a trumpet player, and the same thing happens to him. Oh, he had asked me, what kind of horn is that? And I said, well, it's an old opera. Okay. Next cat goes to play. Super flat. And he goes, damn, must be an olds. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot, of, a lot of great lessons from Jacket. I mean, just priceless. priceless. He's, he's connected to the, you know, directly to the lineage of the music. I mean, obviously his, I mean, his and other teachers, they have an influence on, but are there certain things that you pull from in your one-on-one teaching situations that you would never, you sh- I've never thought of it another way. This is the way that, you know, I learned this from Jacket and this is how I'm going to, this is how we're going to approach this. Please do this arrangement of stomping at the Savoy. And I used to have like something like eight bars or on the bridge or something like that. And I remember, so Jack is like a swing era cat. And what's interesting about him is that him and John Coltrane's birth years are only two years apart. But you look at the way Coltrane, you know, finished playing the end of his life and look at the way Jacket finished, you know, went at, at the end of his life. And it's really like an aesthetic choice for how you want to play, like how you want to sound. There's two different directions. So I go in to play this solo on Savoy and I'm trying to play all this I'm trying to play as fast as I can and be impressive. Jacket cuts off the band. He said, what are you trying to do? You trying to play some J.J. Johnson in there? You're never going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't just for me. It was for all the trombone players like, yeah, you're going to do it. And and then he went on to tell us, I played with J.J. Johnson. He said, he was the fastest I ever heard. And not just up here, out here, you know, meaning like sixth and seventh position. He said, he was hitting them positions. I bet you didn't think I you didn't think I knew about that. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, moving from him, and you came to New York, and you're like playing in New York. That's when I when I first met you because I was just moving into town then and setting up a shop at Sam Ash in the back on on Forty Eighth Street. And then I was you you went that your class had some great musicians in it. Um, Man, both brass and wind, man. Because yeah. you were you were in school with Mike Deese, another Mike Deese. fantastic trombone player. Tatum Tatum Greenblatt. Tatum was later. Was Tatum the? He was a year or two after he, you, right? Yeah, he came later. I mean, Dominic Farinacci. Oh, Farinacci. Jamani uh, yeah. Smith, uh, Ulysses Owens, Sherelle uh, Cassidy. I mean, it was crazy. Carmen and Torre, um, Adam Burbaum. I mean it. It was just, it was Barker's, Yasushi Nakamura. And it only just, it, it just grew from there. So you, 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 you did school, you did your artist diploma, and you were playing in town. I remember you, you played with all sorts. You played at the Village Vanguard. You played uh, with the Dizzy Gillespie All-Stars, Lincoln Center. Where, where, where else have you played some other, some other big things? Yeah, I play, there's a friend of mine, we play a game, what big band haven't I played with? And, and uh, I mean, there's a few now. Now the answer is Maria Schneider. I haven't played with Maria Schneider. I would love to play with Nick, with Maria Schneider. And I haven't played with Darcy James, Argus Band. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the Count Basie Orchestra. Actually, when I got that award, 
uh, when I was getting my master's degree, I wasn't even there to accept it because I had accept, I accepted a tour with uh, the Basie band. I felt so bad not being there to. Well, it shows it shows you're deserving. You know, it's like, hey, look, man, he can't he can't be here. He's already on a gig. You know, he's on tour. So where did where did with with all the playing? Where did the education side of things come? Well, this this is important to me and, and near and dear to my heart because I never saw myself. I never envisioned myself as an artist. Uh, that taught, I saw myself as the other way around, as an educator that had the good fortune to do some amazing gigs. Like teaching was my passion. I come from an extended family of educators. So I was like, this is what I wanted to do. Was there anybody in your in your schooling that you that you felt like, hey man, like what they're doing and the playing and teaching, that's that's gonna be me. Yeah, it was it was Jackie McLean, like to to think, you know, someone that legendary who had made all those great blue note recordings everything that he'd done he was really fired up about giving back you know and um nurturing the next generation of artists and he did it um steve davis brilliant artist who's also a great teacher somebody who's who's uh, a caring educator um now i've had some lucky mentors bill katz uh, uh, ironically, a bassoon player. He was a classical bassoon player who ran a great uh, regional all-star big band on Long Island. <laughs> Saturday, Saturday mornings, 8.30 a.m. or something like that. Lauren Sevian, the, the Barry player, was uh, in that band. A lot of good cats came out of that band. <laughs> um, but these folks gave of themselves. And when I saw that, I was like, man, that's that's it. That's I want to do that. So so going going in that a little bit more, how do you how do you balance it? with being an educator and a musician? Well, to be honest, initially, it, it, it wasn't in balance. You know, I heard this, this saying once that, like, being an artist is like committing to a lifestyle of imbalance. You know what I mean? If you're really gonna do it. Um, but when I first started um, teaching and trying to make gigs at the same time, my life was completely uh, imbalanced. But Lucky enough, I was of the age to where like my body could handle it. Do you know what I mean? Like at one point in time, I was full time at Juilliard. I was conducting the um, the jazz orchestra, teaching a theory class, teaching trombone students. Saturdays, I was running the program at NJ Pack, and Sundays, I was teaching at the Jazz at Lincoln Center um, High School uh, Academy. And then I started doing Broadway too. It was it was in hindsight, it was yeah. too much. Um, and then I, I figured out that I wanted to be more present in each thing. So I had to sort of start scaling back and picking and choosing what I wanted to do. It's always tricky because it seems like one or the other suffers is not the right word, but, but you have to sacrifice a little bit on one end or the other. But some guys have, have this great ability to, to be able to juggle everything. It seems like you've, you know, you've not acknowledged where it's too much and, oh, you, you got to find that that sweet spot. I mean, what where is that threshold for you? Did and how did you find it? For me, it, it was it, it was musical. It was because I'm I'm a people person. I'm people driven mm -hmm. person. So I always want to honor my commitments to people. And I just found out that I I wasn't shedding enough. I wasn't putting in enough time on my instrument. So I would end up on stage with all these incredible musicians and just feel completely unarmed, you know, like unequipped, uh, to be there. That's always, uh, that's always tough. And, and, and in terms of, you know, extended hours, I mean, I know that 
the the jazz musician as a species doesn't usually do the morning thing um but uh you know when you're when you got a teaching schedule and you know that's kind of a necessity is there is there anything you do personally to just kind of keep yourself um going on those you know long long stretches on those long days uh discipline is yep. is huge like in terms of you know what you put in your body you know like diet um getting enough sleep and uh, it sounds cliche but those those little things they're like it like it dominoes it can be a snowball effect once one thing kind of gets off and it's about seeing the connections like i made this choice and this led to that and that led to that so the only way i maintained that schedule at that point in time was being extremely disciplined is that something you kind of preach to your students and and you know show them this is what you're going to need to do to if you're going to juggle this sort of lifestyle yeah i try not to preach at them there you know what i mean because everything is a choice out here free will okay. sure. and uh, but I, I i sort of let them know that you have a choice and this is kind of where that path leads you know but sometimes experience is the best teacher with with that with your students do you have particular philosophies that you're trying to teach them and and to help them learn i know with experience you know you always try to pass on experience and things like that but what are what are some of your methods um and philosophies that you put into your students i had a student at berkeley that after a lesson once he said can i talk to you for a second pulled me aside he said can you yell at me i said what are you talking about he said man i just need you to just like i don't know like throw a chair across the room uh, yell at me i just i need i need to feel like you're mad at me and that i suck so that i get motivated to practice and i get better and i said i said okay i said you know what the the feeling and the sound of not having any gigs and not working is like you go to the gig and see all the people that you want to be working with they smile they say hey great to see you they shake your hand what's up and everything and everything is all nice nice and then you go home and the phone doesn't ring or you get no emails in your inbox and you get you know it's not like the fire and brimstone thing it psychologically works for a short amount of time but then when it's your own scheme you know when you're out and you need to you need to find your own motivation to grow and to practice and to excel the fire and brimstone thing doesn't work so you so you didn't yell at the kid no nah, i told him <laughs> I told him it's 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 a different thing out here. And did that did that get through to him? Yeah. Good. Yeah. That's that's important. Cuz it always, you know, trying to get through when, you know, a student is coming to you for advice and and motivation, like being able to get through is is very important. I I know I've seen with you, I've seen some successful students of yours um come through the store and and hear people talk about Professor Burton um <laughs> hey tell them i tell them hire me now <laughs> you're you're a success story now hire me what other what other methods do you do you teach your students because you're you're teaching lots of different things too you're 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 doing you're running big bands you're working with musicians individually um what are what are some things that you do in your day-to-day -day teaching yeah, I, I think a lot of students, like if I'm a private lesson teacher, they come in with certain expectations. 
Like, uh, they just want to drill down on being a killing jazz trombonist. But a lot of times they don't really understand everything that goes into that. You know, like education should be comprehensive and holistic. So they're always shocked in a lesson where I'm like, sit down at the piano. Or I'm like, what's the last thing you've written? Or let's talk about how to voice out this melody for five voices. Or something about the history of the music. Like a lot goes into, you know, it's easy to just want to be myopic. Oh, I just want to be a killing jazz trombonist. But they don't see everything that goes into it. Um, another my another one of my huge philosophies, and this I know it's ironic because we're on Instagram right now, but everything is becoming so virtual. One of my philosophies is to tell them that don't lose sight of what happens in the room. Like being able to own the moment. You know, a lot of them, they feel very successful because they make great practice videos on Instagram. But it's like you hit the bandstand and all of a sudden, you know, you're getting roasted. That's that's a very interesting thread there. I mean, of course, that's a fairly new, um, call it a phenomenon, but but it's a new it's a new thing that's uh, presented itself in the in the music industry in general is you know, you're getting 30 second snippets, but you know, can this, can this guy play a two hour set or, or, and, and, you know, it's, what do you do to kind of try to pull down the, uh, the curtain that or the, you know, the illusion that that's, that's what you're going for when you got to go out and see a live show and see how it's done for two hours straight rather than this little 30 second, you know, TikTok or anything like that. Well, I gotta be honest. A lot of times I can't make that impression. It, it happens later. You know, there's as an as a an educator, a lot of times we tell students what's on the horizon and what they can expect. But, you know, just because of the, the power dynamic and in the institution, you know, you end up sounding preachy and they don't really glean these things till afterwards, after they're out, after they're out in the world. I call it the, the lunch effect. I work with students, I tell them this, 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 and this, and then Three or four years later, I always inevitably get a phone call or an email. Hey, can we go to lunch? I want to pick your brain. You know, and, and I oblige and it's totally cool, but it's like, you know, my brain was there for four years in school when I told you, like, this is how it's going to be. <laughs> you know, put your jacket on. It's cold outside. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> then they get outside. Man, it's cold. Yeah. Com common <laughs> sense is not so common all the time. <laughs> Do you get to a point where you're just like, man, I, I, I'm done. You're gonna figure it out on your own in in real life in in that type of environment. You know, thankfully, I haven't I haven't had that like hand washing moment yet. Because what happens is, is when I have a student that I have trouble getting through to, like I'll go home and like ruminate on it. Like I'll lose sleep over it. You know, like how do I reach this cat? You know, you're not gonna give them everything. But when you notice that there's uh, a behavior or something that's really holding them back, um, I just have to kind of meditate on it until I, I find a way to reach them. Inevitably, I do, but uh, I lose a lot of sleep over trying to reach students. I, I, I don't like giving up on folks. Testament. That's the kind of teacher I think that everybody strives to, to seek and, and, and wants to find. So I want to I want to talk about going back into your into your teaching. So you're. You're playing a lot, you're writing, you're arranging, you're running some ensembles. And man, I have some records and heard some records that you've done and they're, they're incredible. 
are you with your teaching? Are you are you showing your example as a musician? Um, for like when you're working on a project or you have a gig or you tell your students, hey, come and come and check this out. You know, this is this is how I manage it. This is what I do in my life. So it's it's real what I'm what I'm telling you or involving your students into the creative process ever. So th this is great. Students and it's a natural thing to do, make a linear connection between someone's artistry and what they're trying to do. Basically, they, they'll go hear somebody, hear me, hear somebody, and think, hmm, I don't want to sound like that, so there's nothing I have to learn from that person. But education is not linear. So my, when, I, when I work with a student, it's like a, a buffet. It's to give them options. It's to empower them. It's to give them choices to become the best fully realized version of themselves, not to be a carbon copy of me. I think that's so important as a, a teacher. It's like being a doctor. What's the first thing they say? Do no harm. That vibe. To help them get out of the way of themselves. And so ultimately, they end up teaching themselves once they learn that. You know what I mean? I mean, you're, th you're there for guidance and you're there to sort of like man the helm and steer the ship if it starts going in a, in a weird direction. But once they're aware of how much there is to do and how to go about it, then, you know, they're on the path, so to speak. Man, there's so much there. I mean, it's, 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 it's incredible to hear you talk because you can tell how passionate you are about, you know, finding the connection, making that, you know, making sure, is, it, it, is this something that you, you know, in terms of reaching students and, and kind of eliciting um, a response from them, is this, do you do any, you know, reading about psychology or any any sort of that depth of things i mean it sounds like you have and by the smile on your face it's it maybe looks like you have <laughs> that was going to be my major at uh stony brook it's going to be psychology so i auditioned at heart i got the scholarship i was going to transfer and i was going to leave so i'm in this psych class right cognitive psychology and the teacher is playing what is supposed to be uh, a recording of a blending of the syllables B and D, B as in boy and D as in dog, right? So it's, it's just like a digital thing going, but, 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 and a digital thing going, duh, duh, duh. And then she starts to blend them together. And she says to the class, now at this point, it should be imperceivable which syllable is dominant. I raise my hand and I'm like, that's definitely more B than D. She checks the thing. She said, all right, you want to be a clown? She plays another one. I'm like, that's still more B than D, right? <laughs> and she's starting to like fume. She thinks I'm heckling her. She plays another one. I'm like, okay, now you switched it. That's more D than B. And she goes, okay, see me after class, number one, like you're in trouble. <laughs> number two, how did you know that? I said, well... I'm practicing trombone seven to eight hours a day. Literally, all I do is go da 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 da. <laughs> so I can hear I can hear the syllable. So then she was like, "No, see me after class." And her whole tone changed. She invited me to be in the major. Now Stony wow. Brook, five thousand apply, and they accept fifty. Wow. She was, like, she was like, "If you want to be a psych major next year, you got it." And I was like, 
I'm transferring. I'm going to music <laughs> school. Sorry, that's a long story, but I've been interested in psychology for a long time. But it's not necessarily about just psychology, but it's about um, people learn in different ways. And sometimes sure. you just have to frame the information, like whether they're a tactile learner or a visual learner, or whatever. You just have to frame it in a way where they can kind of like see it. So besides besides the education stuff, you're you're doing a couple musical projects. You're doing some some great stuff. What are some upcoming projects that you have in collaborations? What are you what are you working on these days, um, musically yourself? The Black Art Jazz Collective has an album coming out in February. It's the 10th anniversary of the existence of that group. And so they have a great project with uh, two separate rhythm sections and the original Frontline Horns coming out February 18th, something like that. Um, and I love that band because uh, a bunch of us write for it. So you'll get to hear different compositional styles and it truly is a collective in that regard. And um, not to get overly political, but the thrust of that band is um, to celebrate the African-American contribution to jazz um, unapologetically. Um, not to alienate anyone else, because anyone can, can contribute to jazz. But for a while now, we've been tiptoeing around the, the origins of the music and the source of it, you know, which is crazy because, you know, if you listen to Korean gamelan music, you wouldn't question the origin of that music or you know anyway so that's a band i love and the uptown jazz tentet um 10 piece band that i formed with friends from juilliard uh, all all 10 of us are alum alumni of the juilliard school um that band's about to play birdland uh, january 21st the day before jj's 100th birthday wow and, nice uh, and we're working on the third album and you're also doing, I know, because I, I have the flyer up on my door. You're doing Band of Bones with, yes. Dave, with Dave Chamberlain. Awesome, yeah. man, awesome uh, project there that Dave's been running for many years. But that's also yeah. celebrating J.J. Johnson's uh, 100th birthday, too. Which yes, is... they get to stand opposite the great Steve Teray. I'm going to eat my Wheaties that morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Steve. Whew. Is yeah. there going to be dueling conch shells on this one? No, he's got it. I can't play a shell to save my life. Okay, all right. <laughs> so I'll um, I'll leave the shells to him. <laughs> where Where is that with the band of bones? That's going to be at Christ Saint Stephen's Church. I think it's on Seventieth Street, um, maybe between Broadway and Central Park West, something like that. I'm shady on the exact address, but yeah. that's Sunday the twenty first at three p.m. It's great that you're doing other musical stuff on top of all the education stuff. You have to. Um, with um, with a really great gig, which Chicago is, it's a, a, a fantastic gig. Uh, at the same time, you can't lose sight of your own artistic goals. You know, so. What are, what do you have any, do you have any goals and aspirations for the future in your musical career? Yeah, I think for me, it's, it's time for me to form, well, I do have a quintet that I've been playing with in town for the past couple of years now, but I'd like to take that group into the studio and record and perhaps start touring with it. Wow. Steve, do you have, do you have anything else on your end? I got some questions here. Yeah, I've got a couple of questions that have come in. You know, as always, whenever 
there's always the gear questions that come in. So here, here we go, James. Oh, I, um, I don't want to hear this. One. <laughs> uh, so you know this this person's written in saying uh, you know they want to they want to know what your what your what your gear setup is and how you choose that. Um, but actually, why don't you answer that first, and then there's a second part to it that uh, is more of a uh, an advice part of things. Okay, I'll be very quick. Uh, I'm very sensitive to gear changes because of some orthodontic stuff that happened to me. When I first went to heart, um, I got braces and the orthodontist thought it would be a good idea to yank out eight of my molars and then retract everything in. Oh, Oh my God. And his explanation was it would give me a more Eurocentric profile. Oh my God. Wow. because he said, you know, that's the, just look at the magazines. That's the standard for, you know, how folks and musicians should look. And so I let him do it. He yanked my molars and it kind of, it reduced the, the size of the cavity. So it completely changed my sound and my ability to play. Wow. So it was like night and day, just completely different. So I... I feel gear changes very uh, acutely. So it took me a long time to find gear that worked. So what, what does that entail for you? What does that look like for you now? Uh, for me now, the, in terms of dimensions for a, uh, a jazz horn, I've settled on Bach 34, which is similar to a 36, but the, the taper of the bell is different. It's tighter. Mouthpiece wise, where does that land you? Mouthpiece wise, I used to play on a six and a half before all the the orthodontic Michigas. Now, and I had some teachers um, that gave me some kind of sketchy advice in terms of, I once had a, a, a guy I went to take a lesson with, only took one lesson with him. He said, no one needs to play anything bigger than a five brim. And that thought stuck in my head forever and so i kept trying to make different versions of that work until one day i was like well what if i try something bigger so i tried a four things got clearer then a three things got clearer and then a two and so now i play everything from bass trombone to lead trombone everything on a rim size like just a hair bigger than um a bach one and a half equivalent because I heard Alan Raff did this, who we just lost recently. I heard that was Alan Raff's thing. Everything was on a one and a half size room. And and I'm so fortunate that nowadays we have somebody like Greg Black, a total guru, total whiz, total genius, who can make a bass trombone sized rim, but scale the inside appropriately for tenor. And I always say if, if Slide Hampton had access to those options in the 50s and 60s, I mean... Lights out. We'd all we'd all be <laughs> so we'd be on another plane of uh, trombone playing, right? Yeah. So uh, the advice portion of this is um, a lot of uh, you know jazz trombone players are you know the small bore, medium bore, large bore argument. Where do you sit on that, and and how do you kind of recommend uh, an appropriate instrument um, you know setup for for a student? Who's, who's looking to get into to the job? It depends on the nature of the work that you're going to do. Um, like I noticed at Chicago, since I'm essentially playing fourth trumpet on the trombone there, 
because it's a four-piece four brass section. If I play anything larger than a Bach 12, you're just a moose. You're a, like a bull in a china shop, you know? You have to get that, like, you know, uh, tight, pointed articulation. And it, it actually makes the section leader feel better, you know, that they don't have to kind of pull along this logy sound at the bottom of the section. Well, um, that's what it's all about, just making the trumpet guy feel better. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like 98% of life. I mean, that's what I've been doing my whole life, making trumpet guys feel better. <laughs> oh. But no, so it's, it's, it's it's a sound choice for you then. It's not like a a, a, a feel or a, or a comfort thing. Is it's a it's more of a sonic choice than anything. Well, it's got to feel right too. Okay, it's got to feel right too. It's um, it's about a balance between sonic results and uh, the feeling you get from playing the instrument. Okay, and you also like to collect trombones too. I collect some trombones because I really admire and respect the uh, the craftsmanship and the ideas that uh, these great cats put into these horns. Yeah. You're always coming in with something cool in the shop, which I have two slides I'm working on for you right now. Yeah. <laughs> I, got, I got some other questions here that came in. We got some people from the newsletter. We touched on one here. Somebody had asked uh, what you're what you playing on. Uh, I've got one here. This is coming from Jason from our newsletter. He's like, what are you listening to and shredding on and shedding on these days? Oh, well, right now I'm shedding on some JJ music for that, the, the Centennial concert with Band of Bones. And I'm writing some arrangements. Um, but in terms of just pure listening, uh, lately I've been, because of the holidays just passed, I've been listening to Handel's Messiah, like nonstop. It's something about the um, the the Sir Neville Mariner uh, recording. It's it's uh, unreal. What else? What else do you listen to when outside of the holidays? What is, we were talking about at the shop the other day, uh, Medeski Martin and Wood. Yeah, oh, yes, oh, yeah, you yeah. were. Because <laughs> we, we we play some we play some different music here at the shop all the time. It's always like something different. You come in and we always we always have, always have a good conversation about music and oh, listening. Yeah. Uh, you have it. Do you have a guilty pleasure uh, track? 80s pop music. Okay. Really bad, you know. Um, Thompson Twins, Oingo Boingo, <laughs> um, nice. Blue Oyster Cult, like all, all the worst, all the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Some Debbie Gibson in there too. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> um, Steve, I got a couple more. Do you have? Do you have any other questions on your? No, go end? ahead with yours. You, you gotta get some get some in there, man. Okay. Um, let's see. This one is coming from also the newsletter. Um, any advice for a trombone player looking to move to New York City? I'm a jazz trombone player in my last year of high school. Wondering if I should move there for college or move and try to feel into the city first. Thanks so much for your advice, Dominic. Very. Okay. I would say that if. Uh, Dominic, if you did move to the city, I would enroll in school because one of the, I know there's growing debate now about how useful school is. Um, here's the thing. I think what gets slept on is the importance of environment. You know, school, a lot of times, regardless of whatever the overarching philosophy of the institution you're at, um, there's a certain rigor that happens at school, like you're playing an ensemble, like people are actually asking you to write 
and they're asking you to play. Please play for us. Please play your horn. And you'd be surprised like how much that drops off once you're out of school. No one is begging you for your art. You know what I mean? Um, so that, that rigor, it gets awfully quiet once you're out of school and you have to do everything on your own. So um, just appreciate that environment and appreciate the, the peers um, because you end up associating with them, playing with them, working with them for the almost the rest of your life. You know, like those bonds that are created then, they're very powerful. And they can just crash on your couch, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah gotta, gotta, gotta find, Dominic, you have to find a place to live. That's, um, <laughs> if you're not in school, you gotta find a place to live in New York. That's tough. And I would say not everybody's ready for New York. You know, Jackie, Jackie McLean used to say, you know, he used to say, come to Hartford, man, because sometimes you need a place to incubate before you can go to the big cities and be around all these hustlers. That that served you well, for sure. Let's see here. We're getting uh, just to, to wrap things up. We're getting out of uh, time here. Is there anything else that you want to add to the conversation tonight or? Well, I got to be honest, since the, the, the great Cat Williams interview with Shannon Sharp, I've been so inspired to, to sing my song and set <laughs> things straight. But, you know, you got to remember, Cat has 12 comedy specials out as a leader. So I'm not quite ready to <laughs> spill all the tea yet. But if there's one thing that I could um, offer is that... Um, in terms of jazz, uh, promoting it and booking it, um, it seems like everything is being approached from a pop music kind of ethos. And I just think things could be a lot better for a lot of artists if maybe we didn't do that. You know, jazz is jazz. Jazz is not pop. I think about all those independent new artists waiting to, to break through and um, a lot of folks aren't going to get a chance because they're not Taylor Swift. Man, James, thank you so much for being with us. This is great to chat with you, man. No, thank really you. Good. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to our socials at virtuosity underscore Boston and at Jay Landris Brass. James is uh, JB3ism, JB3ISMSisms. Um, a couple of shows coming up. What were the shows coming up one last time, James, for our audience? Uh, Uptown Jazz Tentet at Birdland, January 21st. Uh, Band of Bones, J.J. Johnson Centennial at Christ St. Stephen, Stephen's Church the same day at 3 p.m. And uh, what else? Chicago on Broadway. Chicago on Broadway. Awesome. Um, our next live, our next episode of Long Tones and Livestream is going to be coming from to you from the nam show um we're looking forward to that oh we have not determined the time yet because it's going to be uh, on the west coast and we're going to be running around a trade show but tune into that we will have a very very special guest a near and dear friend of mine a fellow small business owner and brother in brass trent austin of austin custom brass we're going to come to you live from nam check out our socials and our newsletters for more if you haven't yet, uh, make sure you go and rate and review the podcast where you can. That gives us, uh, gives us a boost in the algorithm and gets more people listening. And with that said, James, thank you very much for being on. I look forward Thanks, to James. seeing you in the store soon. Um, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Log Tones. Have a great evening. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, guys.